Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 16, please. Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. Page 1524 in the Book Rack Bible. If you have a Bible, open them up, please, now to Matthew 16. All of us have had moments in our Christian life where suddenly everything just changed. Our perspective of what it means to follow Jesus, our perspective of who He is, everything changes. I want you to think about some of those moments in your own life today because in the text we're going to read, I think we find some critical moments of discipleship, things that have to happen if we're going to grow in our relationship with Christ. I remember one of the first aha moments I had was a young person. I'd come to know Christ as a little boy, but I was in high school. I was in a little church across the bay, uh, probably about 300 members. There was about, I don't know, eight or ten high school kids in the church. I was one of those, and the church went out on a limb and hired a youth pastor, and he came, and, and uh, we immediately you know, just loved this guy. He was, was kind of like us. He understood our hearts, and, and it was just a beautiful thing. Well, he takes us to a rally with other high school students. And he's telling us, you know, he's saying, hey, we're going to go, there's another high school ministry out in the valley, Modesto, and we just want you to kind of catch a little vision for what could happen in our ministry. And so we all piled into his uh, Monte Carlo. There was six of us, I think, packed into this car, and we went across the bridge, San Mateo Bridge, and into the valley area where there was this church called Modesto First Baptist Church, and didn't know anything about it. We walked into a room that was sort of like uh, our youth facility right over here and packed over 200 high school kids in this room, and they were singing. It was a band there, and a guy got up and spoke, and all I, just, all I remember that night is my eyes being like bugs, just bugged out thinking, what in the world is going on here? I didn't know there were this many Christians in the whole state of California. And here were 200 high school kids just rocking out, loving Jesus and testimonies and people sharing. And that was an aha moment for me. It reminded me of what this youth pastor was telling us, that there was a harvest to be won. There were people that needed Christ. And all over the place, uh, there were opportunities for the gospel. And I just remember God using that moment in my life. I remember sitting in the top row of the Oakland Coliseum uh, years ago. I was, I was an eighth grader at the time, but uh, my parents and our church was a part of the Billy Graham crusade, and I think it was in, uh, I don't know, it was the early 1970s, and I was in the very top row of the Oakland Coliseum, and Billy Graham was preaching the gospel, and at the end he gave an invitation, and just people started pouring out of the stands. And I remember just as if it were yesterday, just the Lord speaking into my heart saying, look at all these people that are coming to Christ. Look at all these people that are coming to Christ. Now, I was a professing believer in Christ, but that was one of those aha moments that people stepping across the line of faith, what it means to really follow Jesus. Over the course of my life as a Christian, I've seen lots of things in my life, and I was recounting these things, way too many to even go into today, but you've got stories too where God got your attention, where he showed you something you had never seen before or brought you to a place where you needed to be. This morning we're going to see, I think, four of those kind of snapshot moments that really become critical moments in what it means to follow Jesus. So if you're here today and you're wondering what it means to follow Jesus, you've got questions about what that looks like, you're, you're in for really, I think, a clarifying look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's look at uh, verse 21 through 28. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed 
and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right, we'll stop right there. Uh, What I want to show you this morning are four distinct moments that grow and mature our relationship with Christ. And the first one comes right out of verse 21, if you're taking notes there. I want to show you that there's a discipleship moment when we come to terms with Jesus' life and mission. Notice the first four words of verse 21, from that time on. Now Matthew's using this as a learning key. If you have your Bible open to Matthew, go back to chapter 4 quickly, back to chapter 4, and you'll see this in verse 17 where Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is what we call a preview summary. Matthew is telling us, from this point on, this is what Jesus was all about. Back in chapter 4, it was about preaching that the kingdom had arrived, to repent and get ready for the things to come. Here, in chapter 16, verse 21, The next preview summary, Matthew is showing us that from this point on, it's all about the sufferings of Christ. It's all about what is about to take place with him. So let's look also and remember where we've been in the gospel. Last week, oh, what a great week, Pastor Darby brought to us Peter's great confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So it's no surprise that in the timeline of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, he waits until his followers sufficiently know who he is before he really reveals to them what he has come to do. He wants them to be sure about who he is, and then he reveals ultimately what he has come to do. Now in the context of Jesus' life, we know that this is about six months before his crucifixion. So if you do the math and you know the life and teachings of Christ and his ministry with his disciples, this is about two and a half years into his work with his disciples. So think about this. For two and a half years, he's been showing his disciples who he is. He's been revealing who he is. And finally in chapter 16, verse 18, we've got Peter standing up among the disciples and saying, Jesus, you are not one of many. You are one and only. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter, Peter, after having said that, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for, for, heaven, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then now we've got in this next immediate statement of Jesus, he's saying to them, from this point on, Matthew's making the point, it's all about his suffering. 
Now, of course, Jesus had revealed to his disciples his suffering was coming long before this, but it was usually done in sort of cryptic language. Uh, they, they didn't quite get it. They didn't quite understand. In fact, even until only after the resurrection uh, did the disciples even remember his promise of the resurrection. It seemed like the disciples were just always a little bit behind in the learning curve of what Jesus wanted to show them. But here he leaves no question as to what he is ultimately about. He, I want you to see the intentional uh, language here. Look at verse 21. It, it says that he tells the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. You could underline that word must, verse 21. He must go. Not he would go or he should go, but he must go. This is the determination of Christ. And, and just notice the deliberate details. Where's the place he's going? Jerusalem. What's the nature of the visit? suffering. And what ways is he going to suffer? In many ways. And who will initiate this suffering? The religious leaders, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And to what extent will he suffer? To the point of death. Wow. He will be killed. Now, there is something hopeful here in the midst of this dreary reality of the sufferings of Christ. There's something very hopeful. Notice he says, and on the third day, be raised to life. So from this point on, Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to die for the sins of the world, but he is going to rise. It's interesting, and just in the context of this, the disciples don't respond in any way to the fact that he will be raised to life. It's almost as if they miss that entirely. It's interesting that we, we tend to kind of go to the dark places, don't we? You hear something that's not so good, bad news, something that's happened, kind of hard to hear anything good around that. And Jesus is telling his disciples for a period of six months, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross. I will rise again, I will rise again, I will rise again. But here as Peter hears this, Peter takes him aside, verse 22, and begins, begins to rebuke him. Before we get to that, let me just remind us a little bit about what's happening here in verse 21. How important it is, this is a critical moment in the life of a disciple to see the life and the mission of Christ. Why? Because it's only when we understand his purpose for his coming do we understand our need for him in our own lives. There are a lot of people, religious groups, and people who even name the name of Jesus, who see the life and the example of Jesus as as really only something that extols him as a great teacher, as a great example, as one who loves like nobody else can love. But his mission is taken right out. There is no mission to the cross in many people's theology. There are many churches that sort of espouse this, we're going to follow Jesus, but it's about loving others and caring for others. That's a part of the gospel message. That's huge. But Jesus did not come just to demonstrate love to people. He came to give his life. That was the ultimate demonstration of love. But you cannot separate suffering from the life of Jesus. You cannot separate his mission uh, from who he was. His mission was to come and to die. And it's only when we see that clearly do we see our own need? You see, if we admit that Jesus came to die on, a, on the cross for sins, then we recognize that we're the ones in need for that forgiveness. And there may be somebody sitting here this morning that 
you know, it's all about Jesus being a great example. He's a great teacher of the moral law of God. But you've never seen him as the one who died on the cross, a brutal death for you. Over in Romans 5, and you can turn there if you would like quickly, Romans 5. Just, it just hit me thinking about how many times in this passage Paul had so clear the fact that it was Christ's death that, that would somehow release and give life to him. Verse 6, you see just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, Paul writes. Verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved, by God's, saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. All through this text is this beautiful utterance of the fact that it is our life that Christ came to redeem. It is our sinfulness, it is our death that he purchased so that we might have life. And even while we were in death, this is what Jesus did. This is the glory of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has given to us his very own life. Which brings us to the second aha moment or discipleship moment that I see here in this text, because back to Matthew 16, when Peter sees this and from that time on, Jesus began to explain all these things. Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Okay, so it's a discipleship moment, not only when we understand his life and mission, but it's also a discipleship moment when our own misguided expectations of Jesus are confronted and overturned. Verses 22 and 23 is what we often find among people who have not really fully come to terms with both the life and mission of Jesus. People who are thin on the passion of Christ tend to elevate their desires as the purpose for which he came. In other words, Jesus came to fulfill my desires. And there are some of us sitting here today that we've got this a little bit cockeyed in our thinking. And, and this is a beautiful uh, point to, to bring back to us where the focus needs to be. Uh, G- Peter says to Jesus, this shall never happen. In the, in the first scene, we've got Jesus going to the cross because he must go there. And now we've got Peter standing up and saying, you must not. There's a problem with this. Have you ever found yourself sort of telling God what he must or must not do? Listen carefully to your prayer life. What you're asking God to do in your life sometimes reveals that the way we view God is sort of a, a bellboy to us. Someone who comes alongside of us in our crisis to kind of get us back where we, where we really want to go, where we would like to be. And some of us have experienced this. I know I have in my own life where I just realized, man, I just think that Jesus is, is my servant. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is the ultimate servant. He does place the towel. He gets down. He ministers to us and meets us in our need. But when we come to Christ, the gospel message presents to us not a God who's come alongside to make sure that we achieve all the things that we wanted to achieve in life, but that we come aside 
the king of glory and want to attach our lives to his purposes in every area of our life. I was playing basketball with a young guy not too long ago and just kind of getting to know him and and he asked, I asked what he did, and he works part-time, and he wants to go to school and be law enforcement. And, and then he asked me what I did, and he, he didn't know I was a pastor of the church. And so I, uh, we play over here at basketball, and so I told him I'm the pastor, and he was kind of taken back by it. He said, wow, you know, you're the pastor. Whatever made you decide to become a pastor? And so I told him a little bit about my story, and, and I said, uh, he said, well, what, do you, what, what is required to be a pastor? I said, well, base, well for, fundamentally, you've got to know Jesus, and you've got to love him with all your heart. And then I asked him, do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And he says, oh, I love Jesus. I just don't know him. I said, what does that mean? He goes, well, Jesus has bailed me out so many times. He saved me from this accident I was in, and he got me over this. But do I know him? No, I don't know him. Oh, boy, that opened up another little conversation. But you see, his view fundamentally, and it hasn't changed yet, his view was Jesus has come to kind of give me the life I want. And there's some people here, right here this morning, who may believe the same way. And can I just suggest to you that, um, look at how Jesus responds to Peter. (laughs) He says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And so here Jesus is actually revealing to Peter that actually, Peter, you're wrong. (laughs) I have come to give my life. You are actually right now modeling and speaking from the enemy's camp. Now, isn't this weird? Because just in the last frame of the Gospel of Matthew, Peter is saying the most profound thing that flesh and blood could not reveal him, but only the Father in heaven. So here's Peter standing out there. He gets a big smiley face. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the next frame, you've got Jesus going, get behind me, Satan. How would you like that? Now, now think about this. Is this reminiscent to any of our lives we can be just so on track so dialed in the spirit of god is opening our minds we're just walking with jesus and we're loving jesus and the next moment we're saying jesus now don't you dare do that we're pushing him back we're saying he can't whether when you look back in your life the things that you wanted in your life things that you thought would matter in your life And Jesus is constantly correcting us to see that what we really, as followers of him, ought to be about is about what he wants and about his life and about his mission and about his purpose. And so some of us today, just, I don't know, we got to get this perspective right because otherwise everything we hear, the ask in ministry, the ask in church, the ask for service, the ask for giving, the ask for going, the ask for evangelizing, the ask for all these things that we hear, we say, oh, I'm sorry, I'd like to. It's just, it's not in my plans. Sorry. Unless we hear from the Spirit of God that what our lives ought to be about is what He wants. And then we're always asking, Lord, what is it that you want? As you reveal it, we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, we move forward. If Jesus says he must, then we say, yes, Lord, you must. And we want to be a part of whatever that is. It's a discipleship moment when you understand his life and mission. It's a discipleship moment when your misguided understanding is confronted and overturned. It's also a discipleship moment, verses 24 and 25, when we understand what following him actually means. What does it mean? 
comes down to this very simple and clear instruction. Look at this, verse 24. If anyone would come after me, he must. Now, if you're following Jesus, you're going to lean in and say, what is this? What is it, Lord, that you want? This is perhaps the most clear in all of Scripture, more than any other Scripture, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, one who lives in the true shadow of the cross of Christ, joining him in his disgrace, in his shame, in his humility, and taking up our cross and following him. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. This is the definitive description of the Christ follower. Are you with me? It's to take up our cross. By the way, take up cross, that's the aorist tense of the verb. That means a past, final, this is something I've done in my life. And follow me is in the present tense, which means a continual day after day following. So a Christ follower is one who has definitively come to a place of saying, I'm going to take up my cross, I'm taking up my cross, and then there's a continual follow-through of following Jesus, following Jesus. Tomorrow morning when you get up going to work, you'll be following Jesus. In your prayers, if not spoken audibly, your heart is saying, Jesus, where are you sending me today? Who, are, who is it that I can share your love with today? What things do you want to show me that I can learn more about you? This is our perspective as a follower of Christ. It's not, oh, it's Sunday, I'm going to church, I'll get my little injection of Jesus, then I'll go back into my world and do my thing, and I'll, oh, I'll come back to church, and by the way, I'll miss church probably two or three times during this month because I'm traveling or I'm doing something because it just doesn't fit into my schedule. Are you following me? There are a lot of people that just kind of squeeze Jesus in. It's a Sunday-only event. But Jesus says, if anyone come after me, he must take up his cross, aorist tense, past tense, something that has happened in your life, and present tense, continue to follow me. Is that describing your life this morning? Are you perfect? No. Have you arrived? Absolutely not. But this is the description of who it is to follow. This, this is the person who follows Christ. Now, what does it mean to take up our cross? What does it mean to take up our cross? Uh, some view this as a, a passive acceptance to life's terrible realities. You know, you've got some kind of disease while well, I'm taking up my cross. I'm suffering in silence. This is not at all what Jesus meant when he said take up our cross. Uh, during Roman times, a, a convicted criminal uh, would be forced to carry his own cross to execution. The reason why the Romans did that, it was a demeaning, humiliating exercise. But the reason why they had you carry your own cross was to give a public demonstration that you are now submissive to the rule that you had once opposed. You are now submissive to the rule that you once opposed. The cross was a symbol of the rule of Rome. You carry that cross as a symbol of no longer opposing that law, but now being submissive to it. When Jesus said, if anyone come after me, he must take up his cross, he's saying you must now bear in your life experience a public demonstration of no longer opposing the law of God, but following the law of God. That means when things get tough, tough in your marriage, and man, it just looks like there would be grass greener on the other side of the fence. You know what I'm talking about? When there's difficulty in your marriage, and you recognize that you could, like most people in the world, just sort of wring your hands and say, forget this, I'm moving on. A Christ follower says, no, I made a vow 
that I will be faithful in my vow to the Lord, before the Lord, and before this person. To my spouse, I will stay committed in this marriage. Now, that doesn't mean, please hear me. I know some of us have had terrible experiences in marriage. I'm not talking about women who have been abused. You hang in there and just stay abused. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, in the general sense of marriages that get rough, instead of doing what the world says, just flush the marriage, move on, find someone better, someone that loves you, someone that really understands you, the Christ follower says, no, I'm going to be submissive to the rule that I once opposed in my life. I'm submissive to God. Does that show up anywhere in our lives? The way we treat government, the way we speak about government, the way we pay taxes, the way we honor authority in our lives. These are all ways. The way we care for the needy, the way we look for ways of being just for the unjust, the way we care for the people who are marginalized in our culture. The way we pick up our cross is a demonstration to our world that we are now submissive. We are continually submissive to the the law that we once opposed. This is what it means to take up our cross. It's uh, It's not suffering in silence with some human malady that no one else or very few people have to go through. Unless part of that would be having joy in the result of a malady that you are going through. Okay. That's taking up your cross. And to follow Jesus, the simple point is just every day we're checking in. Every moment we're checking in. Now we don't do this as often as we should, but this is why we open our Bibles every day. This is why we read Scripture every day. Because we're checking in. What does Jesus want? Where is He leading me today? A critical moment of discipleship is when we see what following Jesus actually means. Taking up our cross and following Him. Is that happening in our lives today? Question. There's another discipleship moment here, just lastly, verses 26 through 28. It's a discipleship moment when we embrace the inestimable value of following Jesus. And when we finally see, look at this, verse 26. What good is it for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange of his soul? You know, isn't, it, isn't it easy to kind of look around our world and say, wow, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. Look at all these people. They've got all this stuff. Do you ever stop and realize how much you have as a follower of Christ? Do you ever stop and realize that you have been promised a glorious kingdom in the afterlife? I don't mean in terms of you ruling that kingdom, but a kingdom that, that we only get wisps of in this world. A place where there is no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. A place where Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me that where I am you may be also. I mean, do you realize what Jesus is preparing for us? And here we are in this little patch of dirt, working it out, trying to get all the things. And I think sometimes... We forget with all the clamor in this world for the things of this world, we as Christ followers have been given so much more. And Jesus here just sort of peels it back a little bit and he says, what would it profit if you could gain everything in the world but you lost your soul? It's a critical moment to either opt for the immediate gain in life knowing that there is ultimate loss or we opt for immediate loss in life knowing that there will be ultimate gain. 
Which choice have you made today? You say, well, I want it both. I want it here and I want it there. (laughs) Jesus says, no, if you're going to follow me, there's going to be loss in this life. You're going to lose some things. You're not going to be at the highest always. You're not going to be the most loved. You're not going to have the most stuff. There's going to be loss in this life. But you open a door when you come through that little door that is cavernous in its size. Immediate loss for ultimate gain. But most people in the world say, no, no, no thanks. I'm going to take the big door now. I'm going to take everything now. I'm going to take what I can see now. This is where many of us live our lives. But the inestimable value, Jesus says, what would it profit? Nothing. For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. There is a a reward that's coming. Let's go to 1 Corinthians quickly. We'll close with this. Come on over to 1 Corinthians. Just keep going right. If you're in Matthew, go through the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 10, for by the grace given, grace God has given me, I laid a foundation, Paul writes, as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For one can lay the for no one can lay any foundation other than what is already laid, which is in Christ Jesus. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for it, for what for what it is. Because that day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Isn't that amazing? So we're building our lives right now. We're either building on, on precious stones or we're building on hay, wood, and stubble. And someday the... What we have built in life is going to receive that refiner's fire. And praise God, if you have come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you'll be saved, but, but there could have been so much greater glory given to God and greater blessing, according to what Paul's writing right here. Go over to chapter 4 of verse 5. See this again. Uh, verse 5, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. By the way, that's not talking about the negative, like he's going to show you the bad things in your heart. He's saying that people don't see the good stuff. And this is the problem. Many of us are wanting to serve the Lord and we're giving our hearts with full intent and it's not recognized and it's not glamorized and we kind of sit back and we go, oh, you know, that's just, maybe it is better just to kind of go after the stuff the world tells me to go after. And, and God, right here in chapter 4, he said, Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. God sees what's in your heart. And if you're serving and giving and ministering and helping and doing things that nobody else sees, God sees it. God sees it. And the reward is coming. Each one will receive his praise from God. You can go a little further in chapter 2nd. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And Paul writes again, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And by the way, the word good or bad there is more of a whether useless or useful. 
So God sees. God sees what's in our hearts today, beloved. These are critical moments in discipleship. And I don't know if there's anyone here today that maybe you've been going through just sort of a religious expression in your life. Today the Lord says, hey, it's time to open your eyes. Time to... Time to stop seeing me as sort of the cosmic genie that just shows up and bails you out and gets you all the good stuff in life because my life is about the cross and when you see that, you'll want to be a part of that. If you're one of my kids, you're going to want to be a part of that. You're going to follow me into death. You're going to take up your cross and you're going to follow me all the days of your life. But there's a great reward that's coming and don't take your eyes off it. In fact, he gives a little a little preview to what we see next week. There's some standing right here that won't taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. We'll see what that looks like next week. So today, I don't know. I don't know who's sitting here. You've got friends out of town. You're visiting moms. You're sitting here. And the Lord has just brought to you a simple, clarifying, hopefully clarifying message on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus.